we have been working our way through the very beginning or an introduction to essentials of the faith. This morning, the message is Essentials of the Faith, part three, and it is the third part of the adage that we've been looking at, unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and love in all things. As an introduction to our study of those actual essentials of the faith, and we have a list of seven or eight of them, we're taking a look first at that adage and seeing, is that adage true? Is it true that we are united in essentials and we should remain united in essentials? Is it true that we have liberty in secondary issues? And we examined that last week. Are there actually primary and secondary truths, if you want to look at it that way? And this morning, I'm going to look at the third part of that, love in all things. I pray that you have seen clearly that for all those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that they've been brought into the body of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and are united with one another. If you are a genuine believer, you are united with other believers, and you are, according to Ephesians chapter 4, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We saw that the uniting factor and also that which divides us from the those outside of Jesus Christ is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is absolute and clear from the word of God. We are united in Jesus Christ because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Secondly, we saw that there are non-essentials in which we are to extend liberty. That is, there are truths which, although important, are not a matter of heaven or hell. They are not doctrines which divide between saved or not saved. And in such areas, we should allow freedom to differ without judging a person's salvation based on those non-essential issues. We can challenge one another in those areas, and we should want the best for other members of this universal body of Christ. So we admonish and we encourage, we even direct and correct and convince of truth in these secondary issues, but we do not reject them from fellowship or ministry over these areas, these non-essential areas in which we disagree. Now, after conversation at the end of the service last week, I need to insert a bit of a disclaimer or a caution here. There are some non-essentials which can become essentials. And this is where the line gets a little blurry. This is a rhetorical question, but is drinking wrong? Well, it may not be wise, and you may have seen Devastation, I'm speaking of drinking alcohol, not water. Obviously, drinking water is not wrong. (laughs) Otherwise, we'd have a real issue. But in regards to alcohol, is it wrong? It may not be wise. You may have seen devastation caused by it. And even if you live by the very true principle that if you never have the first drink, you'll never become an alcoholic, the Word of God does not prohibit it. Consuming or not consuming alcohol is not a question of heaven or hell, but of each one's conscience before God. That's the same as the subject of eating meat, as we looked at last week. However, is it a sin to get drunk? Yes. We know according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that we are commanded, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation or excess, debauchery, basically abandonment to sensuality and lust, but be filled with the Spirit. It's very, very clear. Do not be drunk with wine. So becoming drunk with alcohol is a sin. Being very careful here, as one sin or falling into sin does not negate our salvation, otherwise none of us could be saved. However, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. As we have looked at that passage twice now with the Greek word poieo, we have seen that the child of God practices righteousness, that is, continues in righteousness and does not continue or make a habit of sin. The one who continues knowingly in sin, that passage and other passages as well, very clearly say that that one is not of God. That means that they are not united in Jesus Christ. That means it is an issue of essential importance. If nothing else, it denies the essential of the authoritative word of God. You cannot do what the word of God clearly commands not to do and still profess to be submitting to God. So what the word of God is black and white on, we need to be black and white on. Do not make ambiguous things hard and fast rules, but also don't ignore what is clearly proclaimed in the word of God or you deny the authority and thus deny his revelation and your salvation. If you make license out of your liberty, if you think you are free to do whatever you want because the issue is non-essential, you may quickly cross the line into an essential. The reason I say that is because I spoke extensively on our liberty in Jesus Christ last week and encouraged us to give liberty and to walk in liberty, that is to walk in freedom in non-essential issues. But liberty is never to be used as a license to continue in sin. The word of God, particularly Romans chapter 6, is very clear about that. In verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Do not use liberty as a license to sin or as a license or a reason to destroy your brother or sister in Jesus Christ. That is not what you have liberty to do. So I would encourage you to be very careful in this area, not to make license of your liberty. Unity in essentials, liberty in non-essentials, and as much as is possible, keep the essentials limited to what the Word of God clearly presents as essential to salvation. Keep them focused around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything that is ambiguous or amoral, that is, neither moral nor immoral, but amoral, not a question of morality such as eating meat, then look at it as a non-essential and so extend liberty even if you disagree with someone's stance. If in doubt as to whether it is an essential or a non-essential, it is likely a non-essential. That's a principle. That's my principle, not a law. But if in doubt as to whether it is a essential or a non-essential, it is likely a non-essential. And then moving on to the third part of the adage, which is what we're going to look at today, love in all things. And I pray that whether you have agreed with me or disagreed with me in regards to essentials or non-essentials, that you will continue to extend love towards me. And as we love one another, we should be able to wrestle through hard conversations, whether it's about essentials or non-essentials, we should be able to wrestle through the deep subjects, the hard subjects, and to come, if not to a complete consensus, to an understanding of one another and a continued demonstration of love to one another. Love in all things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grant us wisdom and understanding as we look into your word. I ask that you would grant us a care for one another that isn't superficial, but it's genuine love, a genuine concern and care for the greatest good of one another. 
I pray that we'd be quick to speak that and to demonstrate that and that our lives would, would radiate that. Whether that's to in the church or in the world at large, Lord, I just pray that we would be known as people who love one another and that it would be a proper definition, a proper understanding of exactly what love is. I pray that you would grant us hearts and lives that are pliable and are moldable in your hands this morning, that we would be sensitive to you. We trust that you will speak through your word by your Holy Spirit. And so we submit and say, accomplish that, do that as you will. In our own unique situation, in our own unique circumstances, wherever we may stand, Lord, we desire, we long to hear from you by your Spirit through your word. So, Lord, we ask, we trust that not only are you able, but that you will accomplish that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love in all things. Third part of the adage. This applies to literally all things, as it states. We are to love those with whom we are united in essentials and those whom our firm stand on essentials divides us from. We are to love those in the body of Christ, saved by grace through faith, and we are to love those who are outside of the body of Christ. We are to love those particularly within, with whom we agree with them in their liberty, and those that we think are off their rocker in their liberty. We are still, and simply, to love them. Having said that, love needs to be defined because it certainly is not what the world takes it to be or even often what the church sees it as. And we have looked at this subject fairly often, so this isn't something that is new to you and I don't need to go into a lot of detail but simply remind you, love. Love one another. Love is selflessly caring for the greatest good of the individual. Our understanding of the word love comes from the Greek word agape, Agape refers to an unending, unchanging care for someone. Agape love is not the kind of feeling that appears for a time then changes. It is a love that loves without regard for the worth of the object being loved. It is caring for that greatest good. It is far more than simple affection. It is a decision of the will to actively care for the greatest good of others. One verse that illustrates agape love very clearly is Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and there are many. But this one says, God demonstrated his love, agape, his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is caring for our greatest good at great cost to himself. It is sacrificial. This is the love of God, and we are to love others as God has loved us. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there are 613 laws given to men. There are some that are instructions and some that are restrictions. These laws formed the heart of the Jewish belief and was the driving force behind the scribes and Pharisees. This is what they focused on, dealing with those 613 laws and the interpretation of them. They sought to identify the greatest among these laws. Jesus takes the entire law and sums it up in two statements about one word, and that word is love. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, we see a presentation of that. Now, this chapter is not a nice or a pretty or a pleasant chapter. In verse 13 of this chapter, we find that Jesus is among a deceptive group of people who are seeking to trip him up. It says, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, to catch him in his words. 
The Pharisees, they were the ones who were sticklers for the Jewish law, and they were seeking liberty from their Roman conquerors. The Herodians, they were sticklers for the Roman law and their customs. So you have two opposing factions here, each with their center points, basically with the theme of their life. And it's an opposition. And they are sent together to cause Christ to trip over his words. In verse 13 to 17, you have the Pharisees asking about giving money to Caesar. So those who were sticklers for Jewish law and liberty from the Roman conquerors are asking him about giving money to the Roman system. Then the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, they're also there. And the Sadducees ask about something that they disagree with. They ask about the resurrection in verse 18 to 27. And then comes along one of the scribes, and he asks, starting in verse 28, what is basically the first commandment? So Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. They ask, what is the greatest? What is the foremost? What is of priority? Put in context for us today, it would be that question. Jesus, what is the greatest priority for my life? What is the thing that I am to seek to follow? What is it that I am to do? Now, going back, this is obviously looking at the law. And he sums up all those 613 laws in two laws. Love God with all that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Here, Jesus is quoting what is called the Shema prayer, which is the Jewish prayer service that was prayed every morning and every evening. They would have known this. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Jews would quote this twice a day at least. So they knew that it was the first in this list of commandments. It was of greatest priority. They recognized it as that priority. Christ here declared it as first priority. We know that it is priority. Love the Lord your God. Greatest priority of your life? Love the Lord your God. I pray it is. We must make certain that God occupies first place in our lives, ahead of every other love or allegiance, that it is God. Because if God does not occupy first place in our lives, if we do not love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I guarantee you will not be able to love others as yourself. The greatest command, the highest priority is to love God. And the second it says in verse 31 is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a very simple statement. Not easy, but it's a simple statement. Jesus says that we are to love others in the exact same way as we love ourselves. We are to be constantly looking out for the best interests of others. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. We are to love others as we love ourselves. And we all know that we love ourselves, right? Even if we have a maybe a self-deprecating sense of humor about ourselves, we generally love ourselves, usually too much. 
We go to great lengths to take care of and to provide for ourselves. We eat so that we don't starve. We drink so that we don't die of thirst. We go to the doctor when things are wrong to make sure that we're taken care of. There's nothing wrong with loving ourselves in that sense, but we must love our neighbors in the same way. So when you think of all the things that you do to take care of yourself, do you love others? Do I love others in the same way? I am selfish in my love. And I think it is good for us to acknowledge that, to own that, and to desire and to pray that God would enable us by his Holy Spirit to love others. And notice the word that Jesus Christ uses here when he gives this greatest or second greatest commandment. It is the word neighbor. In quoting from the Old Testament law, Christ used the word neighbor. He didn't say fellow believer. He didn't say member of the church. He didn't say even non-believer. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke chapter 10, we have that exact same story. And yet it goes on with the story of the Good Samaritan. The story is presented in the exact context as we see here in Mark. That one of asking, what is the greatest commandment? And it says in verse 29 of Luke chapter 10, But he, the original questioner about the greatest commandment, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Can you see yourself in him? Jesus has just given you the the second most important commandment ever to be written. And it sums up everything in relationship with human beings. And it is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And this fellow figures, there's got to be a way out of this because he can't actually mean everybody. So what do you mean by my neighbor? And Jesus goes on with the story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, the Samaritan who showed mercy to this Jew who was robbed and beaten was the one who loved his neighbor. Now, he wasn't literally a neighbor, as in living next door to this person. He wasn't of the same nationality. As a matter of fact, the wonder of this story is that the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They were enemies. The Samaritans were despised. But this Samaritan showed care to this Jew. And when the questioner is faced with this, he confesses that we are to show mercy, to demonstrate love to everyone. He owns the fact that everyone is our neighbor. So when it says, love your neighbor as yourself, It is speaking of everyone. Love God and love others. Now, essentials are essential. Non-essentials are non-essential. And love is to cover those and everything in between and everything beyond. We are to love in all things. And isn't that clearly what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says? That though you may have everything else, but you don't have love, you have and are nothing? Yes, it is important for us to understand what the essentials are. We must. You as a believer, you being united with one another in Jesus Christ, that's what makes those things essential, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, that the word of God is the authority as far as the revelation of God to man, that our life is to submit to it. I mean, these are essentials. But whether you agree or disagree on those essentials, is it covered in love? And what about going beyond that to the non-essentials? Do we love one another as a body of Christ where we differ, where we disagree? Now, I'm not speaking even just inside these four walls because most likely we are fairly close. We're not extreme, I would say, in non-essentials. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be fellowshipping here. 
If you were that extreme, you'd find another place that was that much different from us. So we're fairly like-minded here in regards to these areas that we have freedom or liberty. Do we love one another? And then do we love others who are truly part of the body of Jesus Christ? But on some areas, we just think that they're a little whacked <laughs> or off their rocker, that they're just, they're just out there. Do we demonstrate love? Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Though I can discern, in a sense, with precision and certainty, the essentials and the non-essentials, but have not love, I am nothing. Though I can argue the essentials of the faith with wit and with charm, if I have not love, I am nothing. Though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith. That is extensive. That's all inclusive. I am nothing without love. We are and should remain united in the essentials. We have and we must show liberty in the non-essentials, but love must be over all of those things. We are to demonstrate it, to live it, to speak it. I would like to just briefly, I hope just briefly, point out two directions in which we are to demonstrate love. We are to demonstrate love or we are to love those outside of Jesus Christ. We are. We are to love those who have not come yet to trust in Jesus Christ. That does not mean that we unite with them. Remember, unity in essentials means we cannot be united in fellowship and in the work of the ministry with those outside of those essentials. Basically, we are united with those that are in the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but we aren't united, fully united, with those who are outside of the family. What we should be doing is preaching Jesus Christ in love so prayerfully they become part of the family of God so we can be united with them. Love the unbeliever. That is truly care for the greatest good, for their eternal good of those outside of Jesus Christ. Do so by pointing them towards Jesus Christ. In our relationships with those who do not know Jesus Christ, is that our focus, that we are pointing them to Jesus Christ? It is interesting that as you read through the scriptures, you see very little spoken about, or using this term, loving the unbelievers. We commonly use or we hear the saying, love the sinner but not the sin. Is that truly biblical? Well, in principle it is, but our practice of loving the sinner is often warped. This is from my perspective. We have gotten this idea that we just need to love people into the kingdom of God and we end up just befriending them in their sinfulness rather than preaching the gospel to them. I pray that is not you, but too often it is reflective of myself. It is reflective of the church in North America today. Even the term friendship evangelism, though they may have had a certain success rate, has often become an excuse not to evangelize. And if you doubt that, consider someone outside of Jesus Christ who you are a good friend with. And tell me honestly that as that friendship has grown and become stronger and stronger and stronger, has it become easier or harder to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them? Sometimes it will become easier. I would say that is a rare exception. Because unfortunately, we get to that point where we are so comfortable just being friends with them that we don't want to lose the friendship over loving them enough to speak of Jesus Christ. There's a danger that I see. 
Are we to love the lost? Absolutely. We must love the lost. Did Christ love the lost? Absolutely he did. But he never avoided their lostness. Christ never downplayed their spiritual deadness for the sake of friendship. Christ's love for them was too great to allow unbelievers to go wandering about in their sin in ignorance. Often when how Christ related to sinners comes up, we hear that he ate with sinners and drank with sinners and spent time with sinners. And so it's inferred that we must be doing the same. And there's some truth to that. We also hear how the self-righteous judged him for doing so. And the connotation could be that we're too religious to actually love sinners. I pray that that's not true. Mark chapter 2, verse 16 to 17. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And some well-intentioned people say, Well, that's just what needs to happen today. We need to spend more time with sinners. Get out of your cushy pews and comfortable holy huddles and get into the world. And that, there is definitely some truth in that. But look at how Jesus responds to that question that they ask him. He didn't stop hanging out with sinners, but he does identify them as actually that. He identifies them as sinners. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christ identified those he was hanging out with as sick and sinful. So now look at your friendship with those who are outside of Jesus Christ. Is that what we actually acknowledge that they are? Sick and sinful. Christ is not hanging out with sinners because they had common enjoyments and fellowship was pleasant. He's hanging out with sinners because he is intent on bringing restoration and salvation. John Piper says, I can imagine that in those or in most of these dinner parties, Jesus said things that were so blunt and so straightforward and to some so offensive that he never got invited back. Issues arose in the conversation that exposed the selfishness and pride and greed and sensuality of sinful friends that he loved. And from the little we can see, it is highly unlikely that Jesus would have simply listened and said nothing about the ways of the kingdom. He would have acted like a physician. I see some disease here and I know a remedy. And he points them to the way of the kingdom. Your love for those outside of Jesus Christ, how does it look? And I'm not saying stop loving them. But what does that look, what does that love look like? Does that love come across as a rescue mission? Or as a comfortable coexistence where sinners are fine just the way they are and we're friends who value the same things? And remember, every time I point at you, I have three at least pointing back at myself. In my friendships with those outside of Jesus Christ, am I concerned about their soul and enough to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though it may cost the friendship? Are we loving our neighbors as ourselves, concerned about spiritual things? I could easily get derailed on this one, but I shouldn't. Ten times in the New Testament, we have that Old Testament command reiterated to love your neighbor as yourself. That actually means what it says, love them. One other time we clearly see that command to love non-believers. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 11. There's, we, we wrestle with this because in one portion it says to love your brother, but another it says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's straightforward. That's not talking about the one that's in Christ or the one that's outside of Jesus Christ, just that we are to love. We are to love one another, saved and unsaved. Every person has been made in the image of God and has intrinsic value. We are to love them selflessly 
and sacrificially. We are to love them enough to care for their greatest good enough that we preach the gospel to the unsaved. Don't love them so little that you'll just hang out with them and hope you rub off on them. Love them enough to confront them with their need of the great physician, their need of our glorious Savior. And just before I abandon this thought, if you are involved in friendship evangelism, I want to challenge you with this. Is it to your credit that your friends who are non-believers like you? I want that to sink in as far as a question. If you're involved in friendship evangelism, is it to your credit that your friends who are non-believers like you? In 1 Peter chapter 4, we see a just one specific example. These dispersed believers here in 1 Peter, particularly the Gentile believers, had abandoned their sinful practices and they were walking in purity and holiness before the world. And it became an affront to their friends who were still continuing in that lifestyle. Speaking to believers, it says, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regards to these, they, that is, non-believers, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, reckless, wild living, the NIV says, speaking evil of you. They think it's strange that you don't do what they do, and they are speaking evil of you. Those who were non-believers spoke evil of the transformed life of the believer. The purity and the holiness of believers should be an affront to those who are unregenerate. Our lives, just in living them in purity and in holiness, should be an offense to those who are outside of Jesus Christ. Is it possible that our light is so dimmed it is not piercing the darkness of their sin-filled lives? And we are covering it up with the idea of friendship evangelism. Love the unsaved. Love them enough to confront them with their sin and point them to the Savior. That's just one half of it. The other side is we're to love one another as well. Love in all things. Love those who are outside of Jesus Christ by pointing them to Christ. Love those who are in Jesus Christ by pointing them to Christ, by building them up in Jesus Christ. That word agape love is used primarily in regards to God and believers, almost exclusively when it tells us to love one another, with the aforementioned exceptions, almost exclusively aside from those, it is speaking to the body of Jesus Christ about the body of Jesus Christ. Did you realize that? When we're commanded to love one another, to love the brethren, aside from those 10 instances where it's saying, love your neighbor as yourself, which is a reiteration of the Old Testament law, and two or three possible references to loving unbelievers, the vast majority of times it's saying, church, love one another. In regards to this series and the adage, unity and essentials, liberty and non-essentials, and love in all things, we are called to love. Yes, love those you're not united with. Love them enough to share Christ. But, maybe even more so in a sense, as far as the amount of the time the word is used, it's about three to one at least, love one another in Christ. We're to love the body. And this is particularly hard where we differ on non-essentials because non-essentials can still have incredible relevance to us. They can be hugely 
important. We can feel at times like non-essentials are issues to die over or to sever the unity of the body over, to not love over. And we are to love, even in these areas we disagree. Last week we looked at Romans chapter 14 and the freedom that believers have to eat or not eat meat. That is an amoral issue. It's neither right nor wrong. But each one was to do as he was fully convinced in his own mind. We saw that in Romans chapter 14, verse 5. This is a prime example of a non-essential. So in these differences over non-essentials, we are to love each other, to actually care for the greatest good of the member. How does that look? Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Paul goes on, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. That's pretty direct. Do not destroy with your freedom the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, verse 20 tells us. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Romans chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples. That's those standings that we may think are ridiculous. To bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Love is caring for the greatest good of the individual. So in regards to non-essentials, we are to never allow them to be a stumbling block or a cause to fall in a brother or sister's path. We are to lay aside our rights, our privileges in these areas of freedom if they are going to trip up a fellow believer. We are to place their spiritual journey ahead of our comfort or our desires. Remembering once again that these are non-essentials. You must not sacrifice anything that is essential to the faith, but eating meat or drinking wine or any of those other things that are secondary are never to be practiced where it causes offense. And it's not because we're entering into some form of legalism, but we're entering into love. I will not do this because I do not want to cause hurt or offense to my brother or sister in Jesus Christ. And I love them enough that it's not a burden for me not to do it. Or it's not a burden for me to do it because of love. If your brother is grieved by your liberty or your walk of liberty, you are no longer walking in love. In other words, liberty should never be used to bring another believer down. But in that liberty, we are to be encouraging and edifying and building each other up. We are to love one another enough to not hurt them in our freedom over non-essentials. We are also to love our brother and sister in Christ enough to push them and to direct them in their spiritual maturity. There are many things which are non-essentials of the faith, not issues of heaven or hell, which are still hugely important. The essentials of the faith revolve around the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are a matter of salvation. Non-essentials may not be that, but still be matters of maturity or perseverance in the faith. Does a person have to understand the sovereignty of God to be saved? No, practically speaking, they don't. And that's a good thing because honestly, if we did, if we had to fully understand the sovereignty of God before we're saved, we'd never get saved. But now that you have trusted in Jesus Christ and now that you've grown and matured in it, 
This is just an illustration. You have seen the wonder of it and the benefit of comprehending it. It has been the sovereignty of God that has held you in time of struggle and grief. And so you share it passionately with other believers. There is a vast number of truths that are instrumental in our spiritual journey. And so we should build up one another in these things, encourage one another, correct one another, direct one another, challenge one another. We reason together, we discuss and we pray together and we seek God together. We love one another enough to do that, even when it may be awkward and uncomfortable at times because of our differences. Even where it is real challenging, in sensitive areas, we are to love one another. And if that love, I believe, is no one, then there is no subject too difficult to wrestle through. And you know that yourself as well. I will guarantee that you know somebody in your life that you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, cares for your greatest good all of the time. And that individual could probably speak into your life on the most sensitive, difficult, painful situation. Why can they do that? Because you know they love you. And I pray that we would get to that point where we, every person in our congregation that's a part of our church, that's part of this local, visible gathering of the body of Christ, that we would love one another to that degree and that that love would be known by one another so that regardless of these differences and through these differences and through the pain that they often bring, we could build one another up in Jesus Christ. Love in all things. Whether you're united in essentials or not, love people. Whether you disagree or agree on non-essentials, love people. And everything you do and say and think, let it flow from that position of love, the love that God has demonstrated towards you. He's given it not just so you can contain it, but so that you can share it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love, love that exercised itself, that stepped out, that took action. You demonstrated your love towards us in sending Jesus Christ. While we were still enemies, while we were still in rebellion, you cared enough for our greatest good, not because we had worth, but simply because you are love. And we thank you for your love. We thank you that you have demonstrated it to us. We thank you that in Jesus Christ now, we have that love living within us, We ask that you would enable us, give us confidence and boldness to love one another, whether in the church or out of the church, whether in Christ or outside of Jesus Christ. May we be passionate in our love. May we be aggressive in our love. May we be bold and confident, especially in this area of speaking the truth in love. I pray that we would have a witness and a testimony as being known, not as agreeing with everybody, but as loving everyone as we seek the truth of your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.